arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they are drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be on the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people, then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Well, it, it has been a full service. There is still a sermon. So I'm looking at the clock, and I'm not going to make any promises, but it won't be an hour-long sermon. That's all I can say. Uh, this fall, we are teaching through the book of Acts. We're calling the series uh, Blueprint. And we're focusing in on chapters 1 through 12. Why study Acts? Well, I found an answer that I thought was succinct and very clear. It's from Dennis Johnson, who wrote a book called The Message of Acts, which is a great book on Acts. And I have his um, answer. I think it's going to come up there on the screen. But he says, Acts is God's call to remember and reflect on his design for the church and reconsider how our church fits or fails to fit the blueprint. So what he's saying there is in Acts, we have a blueprint. We have the blueprint. We see how Jesus built the church. And we read these stories of how these early Christian communities became these centers of incredible life transformation and impact. And so we're seeing how the gospel went deep into individual lives and into cities. And we see also how the gospel went out from these Christians who began in Jerusalem. It ended up spreading all the way to the very center of the Roman Empire there in the city of Rome. 
But why study Acts right now, this fall, for us as a church? Well, as I shared at our town hall meeting a few weeks ago, for a number of reasons, we sense God is doing something new here at Trinity. That he's moving us in new ways of going deep with each other into the gospel, into each other's lives and relationships, and in new ways sending us out as a church to serve and to bless our communities and each other. Last week, when we started the series, we looked at how verses 1 through 14, the very first two scenes in the book of Acts, really function as the foundation If we're using the blueprint and the house metaphor, Acts 1, uh, 1 1 through 14 showed us the foundation on which to build a church, on which to build a life. We saw that it was threefold, that it was proof that Christianity is is true. We believe it because it's true. We saw that the, the second part of the foundation is the promise, that we wait on God to fulfill His promise. And thirdly, that we uh, practice that waiting in prayer. And so that was last week's message. If Acts 1 gives us the foundation, in Acts 2 we have what we could think of as the frame for the house. The foundation is what you build everything else on. The frame is what holds everything up. It's what everything else goes inside of. So Acts 2 is the frame, and we're going to take the next three weeks to look at Acts chapter 2 together. And as we look at Acts chapter 2 over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three major things. These three things, if you don't have them, you don't have a frame. In other words, you don't have a church without these three things. First is the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about today. Second is the gospel, a clear understanding of the message at the heart of Christianity and the church. And third is an intentional life together, deep community with deep relationships. That's the next three weeks, the Holy Spirit, the gospel, and life together community. So today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, which can be a little bit of a source of confusion. Sometimes the idea of the Holy Spirit is very ethereal. We're not quite sure what to make of it. Often it's hard for us to understand. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? Why is He important? Well, Acts chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 21, but really the whole chapter, is all about the Holy Spirit. Three things that He did and three things that He still does. That's what we're going to look at this morning. They're in your outline if you're following along. I have a little curveball. I switch points uh, two and three around. So three is two and two is three. So that's how it's going to work this morning. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit starts something new, how he speaks a new language, and how he sends everyone on mission. Another way you could think about it is Acts 2, 1 through 21, tells us what does the Holy Spirit do? How does he do it? Through this new language. And who does he do it through? He sends everyone on mission. So let's start with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, let's just stop there. Today we associate the word Pentecost maybe with, our, with the church calendar. If you look at page 1 or page 2 in our bulletin, you'll see we're counting off our Sundays in reference to the day of Pentecost. So it's a liturgical um, word for many of us. Or you might associate the word Pentecost with a certain type of Christian, Pentecostals. But at this time, Pentecost was a major Jewish holiday. 
It was one of the three great feasts in Israel. There was Passover, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost just means 50th because it's 50 days after Passover. So it's seven weeks plus one day after the other major feast, which is Passover in ancient Judaism. So what's happening here, just to set the scene, is massive amounts of people and pilgrims are streaming into the city of Jerusalem because that's what they were told to do in the Old Testament on these major feast days to make a pilgrimage for worship. And so they were gathered here in Jerusalem on this day. And this is a very important day. We can think of it like Thanksgiving. We can think of it like Christmas. This is a major day on the Jewish calendar. And by telling us the specific day, Luke wants us to see something. He wants us to see that this was all part of God's plan, down to the very day. The literal translation there of verse 1 could be, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Now, what does it mean to fulfill a day? Well, Pentecost, the, the focus and the, and the, uh, the point of Pentecost, Pentecost was to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So it was a day to offer to God. Here is the beginning of the wheat harvest, and we are trusting you uh, for what's to come later. So people from all over the world were gathered here to celebrate this first fruits harvest. And what Luke is doing to connect this day and saying this day is fulfilled is he's saying this is a day of first fruits. God is doing something new. People from all over the world will come to believe in Jesus, and this is the beginning of that new thing. He is fulfilling his promise and plan for the world. So in verse 17, when Peter starts to explain what's happening to the crowds, if you look at verse 17, he says, what's happening here is what was spoken through the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And there in verse 17, it says, it will be. In the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. So Peter is essentially saying this is the start of a whole new time. And this time is called the last days. People often ask or get caught up in the question, are we living in the last days? Is this the last days? Is this the end of time? And often are searching and seeking the Bible for an answer to that question. What Peter is saying here in his sermon is he's saying yes. It started on the day of Pentecost. We are in the last days. If you look at verse, where is it again? Verse 20. He says there are the last days and then there is the last day, the day of the Lord. We are living in the last days up until the time of the last day, the day of the Lord. Last days. What does it mean? If we're living in a new time period, What does it mean to be living in the last days? According to the Old Testament, the last days are a time that that will come where God will do something completely new in the world. If you look at the prophet Ezekiel, the last days are a time when God will remove our old hearts of stone and give us a new heart of flesh. If you look at the prophet Jeremiah, he says God is going to make a new covenant, not like the old covenant that he made with Israel and Judah. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43 says, I am going to do, I will do a new thing. At Pentecost, all this is coming, 
And Luke is communicating to us that the time is now. God is doing something new in the world. The new age of resurrection has come into our old age. And in the Bible, when God does something new, he almost always gives a sign, a sign that he is doing something new. You think of the rainbow with the covenant that God made with Noah. We could think of circumcision and Abraham or the thunder and the lightning when the law was given through Moses. These were all signs to show people God is doing something new. Pay attention to this. Here, because it is so new, what God is doing, he gives three different signs. Did you see these signs? There's the wind, there is the fire, and there are the tongues or the different languages. These three signs in 2, 1 through 4, they all point to how the Holy Spirit was starting something new. I want to talk about the wind and the fire, and in the next point, we're going to talk about the tongues and the languages, the wind. The author, Luke, he picks a really rare word here. It's only used two times in the New Testament. It could be translated breath. It's also translated uh, that way, breath, in Acts 17, where Paul is preaching. He says, God gives life and breath, or wind, to all things. This word connects us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, the creation of humanity. There in Genesis 2, as Moses, the author, is narrating to us how human beings come to life. He says in 2, chapter 2, verse 7, The Lord formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The other place where this word is used is in Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, we have a, um, a Bible reading plan here at Trinity. It's called CBR. It's been, it's been a little bit tougher for us this year because our Old Testament reading has been through the prophets. Anybody make it through Ezekiel? Ezekiel is one of the hard... We got one back there. Good. One person. It, it's a hard book to read. It's hard for us to understand. But one of uh, the most compelling and memorable pictures in the book of Ezekiel is in Ezekiel 37. There, the prophet Ezekiel is given a picture of when God is going to do something brand new. And he is taken to a valley. It's a vision that God gives him. And in this valley, he says, stand there and look. And what Ezekiel sees is a valley of dry bones. And we might first kind of just read past that and skim past that. But what Ezekiel is looking at is a graveyard. The bones are dry because they've been there for so long. And so Ezekiel's like, well, what's, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I going to do? And Ezekiel 37, this is what it says. The sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Therefore, Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you from them. I'll bring you back. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Now, do you see the connections to Pentecost, to what Peter says is happening on this day when God is doing something totally new? The Holy Spirit brings to life that which seems impossibly dead, 
and lifeless, dry bones. That's the wind. What about the fire? If the wind is a sign of God's life-giving power, the fire is a sign of his holy presence. That's how fire functions throughout the story of the Bible. There is the story of the burning bush in Moses. There is the story of the pillar of fire that follows the Israelites and leads them through the desert. Fire, what does it do? It purifies and it purges. When fire burns something, when it's done burning, what you have is not what was there before. You have something completely new. Who is the Holy Spirit then? The Holy Spirit is wind and fire. The Holy Spirit gives life-giving power and he brings the purifying presence of God to our lives. And what happens when you put wind and fire together? We probably know better than anywhere else in Southern California what happens when wind and fire come together. It's something you cannot control. It's something you cannot manage. It's something you cannot predict. It's something that you cannot stop. That's the picture here of God, the Holy Spirit. We do not control God. We do not control the Spirit. We do not set the direction He does. As Americans, and I would say as the American church, we just want strategies. We want some people to tell us what to do. We want to move quickly to our part. But we can't move too quickly like that with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 3, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So here at Pentecost, this is a one-time event as we're reading this story. It happened one time. The gift is given. Just like the birth of Jesus, his life, just like his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost is a crowning achievement, the final piece of the gospel story and the gift that God gives to us by faith. So it's a one-time event. But there is also, in addition to the one-time pouring out of the Spirit, there is an ongoing filling that we are to experience as Christians. In Acts 4, it says the believers were filled again, the very same people who had been filled here in Acts chapter 2. In Ephesians 5, Paul says you need to be, in an ongoing sense, filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with the life-giving power of God and the holy presence of God. How does this apply to our lives? Well, if the Holy Spirit is the one who starts new things, He is the power and He is the force that starts the new things that God wants to do in our lives. So when we feel lifeless, if you feel lifeless, if you feel cold spiritually, it's not up to you to bring life where there is no life. You're not going to be able to set a fire that which is cold. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't need fresh strategies. We don't need a how-to list. We need the wind, and we need the fire of God. The Holy Spirit starts new things. He gives to life that which seems dead to us. He sets aflame that which needs to be burned away and transformed in our lives. We can't control that. We can't predict it. 
But we also can't stop it when the Holy Spirit chooses to work. What we can do is what the believers were doing, the church was doing before this happened, which is wait and pray and saturate ourselves in the Scriptures. So the Holy Spirit, He starts new things. Secondly, the Holy Spirit speaks a new language. You could think of this as how He starts new things. We have wind, we have fire, and the third sign God gives might be the strangest one to us at first. It says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Verse 8 says, the people were hearing this and they said, we can hear them in our own native languages. So these aren't ecstatic um, utterances, these are actual languages being spoken that the people didn't have knowledge of before, and the people who know those languages are hearing them being spoken. So what was the reaction? In verse 6, they were confused. What's happening? This is strange and weird. We've never seen anything like this. But they were also astounded and amazed. Here at the festival of Pentecost, there were many people. There were crowds from all over there in the city. And in verses 9 through 11, the author Luke, he takes the time to list all the different places where everybody was coming from. Now, why would he take the time to give us this list? Well, there are a number of answers that scholars give. This could be a list of all the communities where the Jewish people were scattered over all those years. And they have come for pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the feast. And that's probably what's going on. But I think it's more than this. This is actually not just a list of those Jewish people who were scattered throughout the world. This is also a representative list of every nation under heaven. That's what it says in verse 5. This is meant to give us just a representative list of the entire world, of every nation, of every race, of every culture. This is, in essence, an updated list of what was called the Table of Nations back in Genesis 10. In Genesis 10, there at the beginning of the Bible story, there is something called the Table of Nations. It's basically a summary of all the people groups in the world at that time. Do you know the story that appears right after Genesis 10? Genesis 10 says, here's, here's everybody in the known world. And Genesis 11 tells us the story of the Tower of Babel. Luke is making a connection to Genesis 10 and 11 here. He's telling us that what's happening here on the day of Pentecost is a reversal of what happened in Genesis 11 in the story of the Tower of Babel. There are many connections, and because I'm going to run through them really quickly, I have a slide to show you here. I hope, hope it's big enough for you to see. In Genesis 11, all the peoples of the earth unite in one place. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. They want to build a tower that reaches to heaven. So this is a story of humanity's best attempt to reach heaven ourselves. And then God comes down, he confuses their language to show them and us that the best human efforts and technology cannot regain heaven and Eden that was lost. Only he can do that for us. Pentecost is a reversal in so many ways of the Tower of Babel story. It was a story of self-salvation. Let's reach heaven through our own wisdom and strength. Here in Pentecost, we hear and read a story of salvation by grace. Heaven comes down. 
as a gift. In Babel, humanity is trying to ascend to heaven by our best efforts. At Pentecost, Jesus has ascended into heaven and he sends down his spirit as a gift. In Babel, humanity is creating a name for themselves. At Pentecost, it's those who call upon the name of the Lord who are rescued and saved. In Babel, God comes down to confuse. In Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit comes down to unite. Babel is a story of confusion, of misunderstanding, whereas Pentecost is a story of understanding. Everybody hearing their own language as they hear the message of the gospel being proclaimed. So we add it all up. This is what Luke is trying to tell us. Pentecost is a sign. The scattering, the division, the misunderstanding that so breaks apart the human race is going to be reversed by the Spirit. And in the church, there will be a gathering, there will be a unity, there will be mutual understanding across cultures, across language, and across race. In every nation under heaven. So Pentecost is saying, this is what will happen, but how will this happen? How can these divisions be overcome? Well, the story of Babel, I know we just spent a little bit of time covering it, but it rings true to me. I think it rings true for our world because isn't it true that so many of our divisions are caused by a language barrier? If you meet somebody who doesn't speak your language, it's very difficult to communicate with them. You have to use sign language and and charades the best that you're able to. And even when we have our personal conflicts with each other in our marriages and our families at work, doesn't it feel like in those moments that you're speaking two different languages? How come I'm not being understood? This person is saying this, but they're not understanding this. Conflict, division all comes down, first of all, to words to language. The language in tongues of Pentecost symbolize more than just simply language, but foreshadows how the Holy Spirit will move the gospel into every nation and bring people from all cultures, races, and ethnicities into the church, which is the story of the book of Acts. And I think this is so important for us today. It's important for every time, every era, every church, but it's very important and significant for us today because there, there are difficulties, there are tensions in our culture, both outside of the church and inside the church when it comes to how we deal with issues of cultural difference. How do we deal with issues of race and ethnicity? Is there something that can unite people without forcing everybody to be the same? to be uniform? Is there a way to value the diversity of a culture in a way that doesn't divide? Pentecost says there is. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and learning His language. Let me break it down like this. First, this story shows us that the Holy Spirit speaks all languages. Did you notice here that Pentecost does not flatten language and culture into one thing. The crowd did not say, oh, look, now I understand Hebrew. Now I can understand Aramaic. Instead, they said, oh, look, I can hear my own language. God was speaking the heart language of each of these people who had come from all over the world. And so for us, we need to learn not to flatten our differences 
to see here that culture, and in fact, race is created by God. It's actually meant to last forever and enrich our experience of eternal worship. That's how we began our worship service this morning with Revelation 7-9. We're there, the picture of heaven that is given is a people from every tribe and nation and language will be worshiping together for eternity. And so sometimes we say this. We say, you know what? I'm totally on board with that. I don't see color. I just see people. There's something good about that. But there's something out of line with what is happening in Pentecost when we say that. That's not how God sees people. He sees all people made in his image and made in his image in their specific nationality to speak their specific language, their specific race. And that's a part of God's design for the beauty of the church and the glories of eternity. So we don't flatten differences. Instead, we celebrate and we're enriched by those differences. So the Holy Spirit, he speaks all languages. And second, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't speak our language. Or I should say the Holy Spirit doesn't only speak our language. Here and in the rest of Acts, What's being shown to the church is you don't have to become Jewish, you don't have to learn Hebrew, and you don't have to become culturally Jewish to be saved or to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah. And this was really, really hard for the early church. The rest of Acts shows us how they dealt with this. But for us and for our purposes this morning, not only do we need to learn not to flatten out our differences, we need to learn not to idolize any one culture. Every culture has areas that are far from God's design, and every, area, every culture has areas that are closer to it. For Christians, this means for us that there are things in every culture for us that need to be challenged and need to be changed. And there are some things in every culture to celebrate, affirm, and learn from. To become a Christian then does not mean to convert to any one culture. And here at Trinity... One of the things I love about our church is how diverse we are, all the different backgrounds we come from. And many of us grew up in a home where English was not the first language or the only language that was being spoken. And here we are, we are part of one church family and community together. And I think it's important for us to remember that what unites us is not English, it's not the English language. What unites us is not our country, that we are Americans. What unites us is the Holy Spirit and the gospel. The culture and the language of the Holy Spirit transcends all other cultures. And so we have to be very careful when we're thinking about our faith and the differences that we might even have here with each other in our church to realize, is this a cultural thing or is this a gospel thing? Much more we could say on that. But I want to move on. The Holy Spirit speaks all languages. He doesn't only speak our language. And we all need to learn a new language. To be a church that unites. To be a church that is a picture of what it looks like to overcome those things that can often divide and create walls between people. We need to learn to speak the Spirit's language. What language is that? Well, here at Pentecost, we see 
that the gospel is a completely new language for any culture. And if you want to learn a new language, the best way to learn a new language is to do two things. To become immersed in that language and to be okay looking like a fool, foolishness. And if you've ever tried to learn a new language or if you've been embedded in a culture, this happened to me when I was um, in college. I thought I was going to go to Argentina for a, for a whole year, and so I needed to learn Spanish. And so I went there for five, six weeks. I took um, uh, an accelerated Spanish course at my college, and then I was in Argentina, so I was immersed. But I couldn't get over my pride of looking like a fool when I was speaking Spanish to other people. I wanted to be polished. I didn't want to speak to other people and then go, wow, like you sound like a toddler. And I even had an experience while I was in Argentina during this time where we were using a, a little Spanish booklet to talk about uh, the message of the gospel with people. And I had an opportunity to share that with this college student. And she was listening to me and it seemed like she was really in it. And she said, just keep going, just keep going. And I got to the end and in my broken Spanish, I said, well, well, what do you think? Would you have any questions? And she just said, oh, I just wanted you to keep talking because it sounds so funny. So that scarred me, and I was like, I'm not even going to talk Spanish. So I couldn't do the foolish, foolishness thing. But why do I bring that up? It's because the way that we learn the language of the Holy Spirit is through those two things, immersion and foolishness. What did the Holy Spirit inspire people to say? What language does the Holy Spirit speak that we need to become immersed in? Look here, the Holy Spirit speaks the gospel. He speaks the good news of what God does for all who call upon him. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, the people said, oh, we hear something. It's a new language. We hear people declaring all about the sinful and terrible acts of humanity. We hear people declaring all about the ways that we've sinned. Nobody's calling me out. That's not what it says. It says in verse 11, we hear all about the magnificent acts of God. When the Holy Spirit came and filled, uh, later in Acts 10, there's another story of the Holy Spirit coming and filling the Gentiles. Here's what it says in verse 46. It says, the people there were full of the Holy Spirit. They were speaking another language and, and declaring the greatness of God. If we want to learn the language of the Holy Spirit, we need to be immersed in the wonders that God has done, in his greatness, in his magnificent acts. What are those magnificent acts? It's not just God out on his own doing his magnificent acts. These are his magnificent and great acts of rescue, redemption, and salvation for us. That is the language the Holy Spirit speaks. He shines the light on God and all that he's done in Jesus for us. That's the language we need to be immersed in. This week, in a number of conversations I was having with, with many of you, and in my own heart, I was just reflecting on the reality that all of us have like a native language in our own soul, in our heart. We're always kind of speaking to each other, there's voices, we have these dialogues going on in our own heads, right? It's not just crazy people, these are, these are things, we're making sense of our lives, we're speaking to ourselves. It's kind of the language of our soul. And so many of us, our souls are full of a language that is not the language of the Holy Spirit. In addition to Joel, 
his prophecy being fulfilled. There's another prophecy that's being fulfilled from the book of Zephaniah here at Pentecost. Zephaniah 3.9. Zephaniah says, For then I will restore pure speech to the peoples, to the nations, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. And he goes on. He's saying, I'm going to teach the entire world a new language. And when they learn this new language, they'll be united and they'll call upon me with one purpose. What we need to remember when it comes to recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit is not a voice of accusation and shame. The Holy Spirit's voice is not a voice of condemnation and guilt. Later in Zephaniah 3, just one verse later, the one I just read in verse 11, it says, On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. And as Zephaniah goes on, he says, this is what's going to happen on that day. You're going to hear the voice of the Lord speaking over to you, over your life, delight. You are my beloved. All your punishment has been removed. And Romans 8, 1. There Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That may be a verse that you've memorized. But what does he say after that? Because, why is there no condemnation? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says the spirit does not speak the language of condemnation. The spirit does not speak the language of guilt. The spirit does not speak the language of accusation and shame. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the language of the Spirit, by being immersed in the great things that God has done for us in Christ. A heart full of the language of accusation and shame and blame and condemnation will result in relationships of division, of emphasizing places where you're different and bring conflict. A heart full of the language of forgiveness and delight and love and freedom is a heart that can move across barriers, that can understand that the unity that we are called to in the Spirit can transcend the ways that we are different. I said there are two ways that we need to learn a new language. There's immersion and there's foolishness. Just real quick on the foolishness piece. This is somewhat humorous. In verses 13 through 15, Peter responds to what the crowd is saying. They see all this happening. All these languages are being spoken. There's a commotion. And somebody says, these people are drunk. They've had too much wine. And Peter responds, it's only 9 in the morning. Meaning, that's kind of a joke. He said, well, if it was 10 p.m., maybe it would be a different story. But we're not drunk. This is something completely different. But what's happening there is they're they're speaking the the magnificent acts of God. They're being mocked. They're being seen as foolish. And Peter stands up and he moves into the middle of it and he says, there is a foolishness to the gospel. There is a foolishness. There is a mocking that we risk to say, here is the language that can overcome our divisions, 
that can help us understand each other across race and culture. It's the language of the cross. There is a sense that 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 challenges those on the conservative side, on the liberal side. It challenges people from every culture and can be seen as foolishness. And Peter says, I'm okay with that. Because when the Spirit speaks, he brings unity that can come in no other way. I want to wrap up with my third point. The Holy Spirit, he starts something new. He is the wind and the fire of God. The Holy Spirit speaks a new language. He teaches us how to speak the language of the gospel, and as he does, he makes the church a unity unlike anything the world has ever seen. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit sends everyone on mission. If you look at verses 14 through, through um, 21, as Paul, or sorry, as Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel, the emphasis of this quotation is on who is being used and sent by the Holy Spirit. Here he says that this, this mission of the Holy Spirit, he is going to enlist all people, verse 17. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men and old men will dream, dream dreams. This is not about age. This is not about gender. He says, I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women. And that's probably a reference to people who were actual servants. This is not about class. This is not about gender. And this is not about age. The Holy Spirit is going to send the gospel to everyone, and the Holy Spirit is going to send the gospel through everyone, regardless of who they are. In verse 7, the people said, what's going on? These people are Galileans. And that's not just a remark on, on their ethnicity or where they came from. That's actually a derogatory statement because people from Galilee were known to speak with an accent. It was a kind of accent. You said, oh, they're just country folk. They don't know what they're talking about. And the point that's being made there by Luke here in Acts is that the people who would least expect themselves to be used by God and the people others would least expect to lead the way into God's new day of salvation are the people that God uses. So for us, in this season, as we're seeking the power of the Holy Spirit, we're asking God, how can we as a church community go deeper, deeper in the gospel, be more immersed in the language of the Holy Spirit together, and how can we go out together I just want to close with this thought, that none of us is competent, but all of us are called to that mission. And none of us is adequate, but all of us are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In simple ways, just to help other people be immersed in the language of the gospel. If you hear people speaking out of, out of the voice of the Holy Spirit, speaking accusation and shame and condemnation and guilt upon themselves, you can be a gentle voice reminding people that's not the language of the Holy Spirit. In the church, everyone is needed. A healthy church is a body where every member is contributing and active and is using their spirit-given gifts to bless the body as a whole. The Holy Spirit, he starts a new thing. He brings to life that which we think is dead. He sets on fire that which we think is cold and hopeless. The Holy Spirit speaks a new language. He speaks the language of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit sends everyone 
everyone whose faith is in Jesus out and uses us on mission. May God make it happen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have the power where we are powerless. You have fire where we feel cold and dead. And so I pray that you would send wind, send fire into our individual hearts and souls and lives and send it on our church that we might be set aflame in love for you, that we might be empowered, that we might have hope in areas where we have given up on. You can only do it. We cannot. No strategy of ours can do that. Send us deep into the gospel and send us out. And may we be a church community that learns to speak grace to each other and receive one another when we are so different. Receive one another with grace and joy and love and understanding. And may we be just a picture of what that can look like into a world that's so divided. Help us see how you want to send us, even this week, into people's lives with simple words of the gospel and simple words of service. Holy Spirit, only you can do it. Fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.